Coming up next on the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. I saw a lady lose her dog, and she was walking along the shoreline where I was fishing. I says, hey, ma'am, don't take your your dog down there. Well, you mind your own business, sonny boy. You know, this is my service dog. Three minutes later, big alligator grabbed that dog and yanked it in the water, and she had the leash, the loop part of the leash on her wrist. She almost got dragged in there. That was John Grosta taking us into Florida alligators, tarpon on the spay rod, and fair flies today on The Swing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how's it going today? Thanks for stopping by the show. If you get a chance and want to support this podcast, one easy way to do that is to share an episode out, uh, whether that's this one or one from the past that you've enjoyed A real easy way to do that is click that share button in whatever app of choice you're using. Appreciate you for any shares. Uh, That's a one way we've definitely grown this podcast and connected and helped anglers all around the country. Today's episode is sponsored by Togan's Fly Shop, who provides superior quality products at an affordable price. An amazing resource for fly tying materials, tools, and fishing accessories. Since 2005, Togan's has been over-delivering on price, service, and passion. And now you can check out that Togan's buzz for yourself. Right now, you can head over to wetflyswing.com slash tokens to get started. That's T-O-G-E-N-S. You support this podcast by clicking through that link to Togans online. John Grosta is here to break down Florida fly fishing with a focus on Skagit and Spay for Tarpon. This is a pretty awesome one. We find out how you can DIY your way to Tarpon with a Spay Rod uh, without a boat, which other species you can hit uh, on a road trip if you're planning to head down to Florida, and why he is loving Bass Pro and his life so much in Florida. We dig into a bunch of, towards the end, some of uh, why Florida is such an epic place, and it's pretty awesome to get this perspective, not only for fishing, but for other things. So um, I'm definitely uh, not sure if I've ever uh, thought about this much, but I think Florida is definitely in the running for a new place to live. Let's find out why today. So without further ado, here we go. John Grosta on TikTok at GBF Spay. How you doing, John? Hey, good morning, Dave. How are you? Uh, great, great. Yeah, thanks for uh, making a little time today uh, to dig into some. You're out in Florida, which is a popular place. We've been talking about uh, actually doing a trip down there uh, coming up this next year. And that's always the tough thing is choosing what to do down there because there's a bunch of different species. Uh, you have a focus on tarpon. So we're going to dig into that today and just, you know, just Florida fishing in general. And you have a unique uh, type of fishing you do down with the spay rod, which is, I think is going to be really interesting for a lot of people. Um, before we get into that, you know, tarpon and, and spay in Florida, talk about how you first got into fly fishing. So I grew up in a city called Rochester, uh, West, Western New York, actually. I grew up on Lake Ontario, fished everything from bluegills and pike and smallmouth and largemouth bass. Uh, in the fall, we would go salmon fishing. And then that's how I got into fly fishing. I'm 55 years old currently, and I've been heaving a fly rod for probably close to 45 years now. And um, I was lucky to grow up in a, in a nice outdoorsy family. My father and his side of the family were real avid hunters and fishermen. My grandfather's side of the family, uh, they, they did the same thing. And Fortunately, my grandfather was a recreational fly fisherman. The first time I saw him take a fly rod and I saw that loop and that, and that forward cast, I was hooked. 
And then since then, I've been fly fishing in fresh and salt water. I've got 72 species on a fly, 51 on a two-handed spay rod. And then I've been down here in Florida for the last 15 years fishing everything from bluegills to catfish to koi carp, those orange and white colored fish. And then uh, I would say if I had to pick one species, the tarpon, my inshore tarpon fishing is is the all-time favorite with a spay rod. Yeah. Yeah, the inshore tarping, that, that is what we're going to talk about here a little bit. And and so the spay, so you're out there a majority of your time, it's the spay rod, is that what you're using? That is correct. The only time you'll see me use a nine-foot fly rod is if I'm field testing gear for Bass Pro Shop. Wow, so that's it. So spay, so all those species, whether it's koi or whatever, you can, the spay, and whether that's like a kind of smaller, shorter stuff versus longer, right? You could use spay rod. Exactly. So a lot of the fly guys down here, they'll use a nine foot rod. Then in recent years, the switch rod or the 10 and a half to say 11 and a half foot fly rods have become popular. Then uh, because I was really lucky to have a mentor by the name of Kevin Cram in Rochester, New York, he introduced me to the saltwater fishing. So when I first moved down here 15 years ago, I said, hey, Kevin, do you know anybody uses a spay rod down here? And he goes, yeah, talk to Dave Olson over at the Orlando Outfitters, or I'm sorry, uh, the Fly Fisherman Fly Shop. So Dave is a big, um, he's a big name in fly fishing down here in Florida, and he works over at uh, White's Tackle. So I gave him a call. He told me what to do. And then basically a couple of weeks later, I says, hey, Dave, I says, I need to ask you one other question. And he says, well, what's that, John? I says, I need more distance. Okay, use a shooting head and mono running line, and you can create all the distance you want. So since then, I've refined everything to a short Skagit type head of about 24 feet. I'll use a sink tip with that, depending on the conditions. But generally speaking, I'll use a 15-foot leader with a little swivel, and I'll take pike-sized poppers on a 5 out hook that are about 8 inches long, 7 inches long, and I'll heave those 135 to 150 feet for inshore tarpon. Mm. Wow. So tarpon and when, and so, well, I want to, I don't want to miss all this because I want to make sure we get this uh, lined out because it's, it's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty awesome. So the spay, but let, let's just take it back and say, cause I don't want to kind of miss mm-hmm. the, that talking because spay is for some people, it's like even more of an addiction, right? It can be. Um, and for you, it sounds like it's the same thing, but it's different. It's not like you're swinging for steelhead out there no. or whatever, Atlantic salmon. So why, why spay? Why, why has spay been such for you? Okay, so there was a famous fly tire down here, and he was talking with a mutual friend, and my friend said to him, he says, hey, you know, I says, I seen, you know, Johnny Grasta over at Stark Lake using a spay rod. So this individual said to my friend, he says, well, let me tell you something there, you, you know, John, you know, you, you go tell that Johnny Grasta that, you know, you can't use a spay rod down here in Florida because you need to have moving water. Right. Well, so as funny as that is, I pretty much used every traditional spay rod technique that everybody would use. Then I refined it to basically picking up the line off the water, having the line go behind your head in, a, in one false cast going forward like I was using a spinning rod. So I pinched the running line with my forward hand and then basically have enough line out the tip of the rod so that when I go to punch it forward, I'm not making, you know, six or seven false casts. Yeah. It's one back cast off the water really hard. I arc my cast up 
and out instead of going straight forward. And that has turned into the biggest addiction that I possibly would admit to right now. Yeah. So, well, let's, let's break that down a little bit. So, so on the rod, so you Mm -hmm. have like a spade rod, let's just take it, let's just go right into the tarpon. So if you're fishing for tarpon and what's the rod, what, what is the length of the rod? And you mentioned the Skagit line. What, what, what is your length? Okay. So if somebody was going to get into inshore tarpon fishing, first, you're going to be targeting fish from five pounds to say 25 or 30 or 50 pounds. You can start with either a 12 or 13 foot rod and an eight weight. You can run a 450 grain Skagit head to your monofilament running line. And then depending on the conditions, you can either add a short sink tip or long sink tip or an intermediate tip to your fly. I highly recommend using a stripping basket like I do, because when you dump, you know, 150 feet of running line in there, it's got to be able to go somewhere where it doesn't get tangled. And down here in Florida, for those tarpon, if your fly line or your running line gets on the ground and you go to make the perfect cast, one little blade of grass or one little tree branch is going to hinder you from achieving your goal of hooking into fish. Now, the nice thing about using that spay rod is you can cast from shore farther than most guys that can double haul 100 feet. Okay. The next thing is this. You can land the fish quicker. You can keep them out of the mangroves a lot easier than if you're fighting with a nine-foot fly rod. Next advantage is a lot of guys that fish in between trees. They are practically on their tippy toes pulling the fly line off the water, trying to get the fly line to go over the top of the trees. With a 13-foot rod or a 15-foot rod, I can basically go from 10 and 2 positioning with the rod going forward and back. My fly line doesn't ever hit the top of the trees because I'm either at least a foot to several feet above the tree branches. And then I can pitch that into spots where most guys would have a challenge in getting their fly in there. Gotcha. Yeah, that's cool. And it's a lot of fun. So, so for somebody like me coming from New York and fly fishing for salmon and steelhead, being able to do that down here and just make subtle changes in my presentations and my gear and my technique, I have way more fun. And then right now, currently, from January 1st to this week, I have 200 tarpon from five to say 18 pounds, all on a 13 foot eight weight or my Sage Igniter or my Sage Method spay rods, which are a 15 foot 10 weight. And it is the funnest thing that I would say I would like to do in fishing. Are there, I'm just curious on, you know, the people out there, is there anybody else using, like, do you see people with the spay out there for tarpon? So there are more people that utilize the spay rod down here than most fly fishermen would think. And in the last few years of utilizing social media as a platform to basically tell guys, hey, look, at don't let your spay rod sit in the closet. If you know how to catch northern pike and smallmouth bass on a fly or striped bass on a fly rod, you can swing that spay rod and you can go to the beach you can go to the jetty environments, all right? You can uh, fish canals and uh, inshore waterways like I do. And currently right now, there's probably, to my knowledge that I know personally, uh, about 27 to 28 spay rod fishermen in the state right now. 
Yeah, yeah. So there's the people to and and it kind of is interesting because it takes us back to you know when you look at the spay like right the all the way back to how they first used it right back in Scotland and stuff I think with they had those long spay rods mm-hmm. casting you know casting overhand over out to the same sort of thing. The difference here is that really you are using like Skagit style lines right versus the long belly. Right. So there's a few traditional spay rod fishermen that I've had a chance to talk to down here in Florida, and they want to utilize that long belly spay line. They want to do the water anchor casting and the downfall to those methods in the areas that I fish in, you don't have that kind of luxury to keep the line in the water yep. and create all that water noise because I'm fishing in alligator infested water. Oh, wow. I need to have a short head anywhere from 18 feet to say 24 feet. I need to be able to yank that head off as quickly as I can, get the line in the air go forward like a spinning rod and get my fly where I want it. And then the downfall is when you do hook good size fish, you got to have a second person to keep an eye on the alligators. Okay. And the benefit of the longer rod is you can usually, you know, hand strip that line in hand over hand, help pull that fish in. You can put the line on the reel quicker. You can get good 10, 15, 25 pound fish to shore quickly without 12 foot alligators, you know, breaking you off. But (laughs) In other areas, on the beach and inlet type areas where you've got coves and that where you can do some wade fishing, traditional spay rod fishing for steelhead, the methods that you would normally use up in the Pacific Northwest or in New York, you can adapt that down here quite easily. Right. So that's it. So you've adapted like some of the techniques people are using. Well, it's just all those lines, yeah, all those casts, those spay casts, whatever it is. And Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like if anybody follows... OPST and Edward. Okay. And when you look at fishermen like that, where they're utilizing shorter shooting heads into with running lines, I've used the same 430 grain head on a 15 foot rod. I'll put it on a nine foot 10 weight and I can sit and make one back cast off the shoreline, punch it forward, release it with my two index fingers. And I'm already at 90, 95 feet. Right. And then with the wind down here, the wind is a little bit of a challenge. So the benefit of using, you know, say shorter Skagit type heads or shooting heads or whatever, you can take a 10 mile an hour wind or 15 mile an hour wind day and still function in it without it having it ruin your casting. Right. But here's the difference between me and a lot of guys down here. If I'm not fishing, I'll take one day a week and I don't care how long it takes. I will find a pond and I will rig up my stripping basket. I will put my spay rod together, I'll throw a big popper, and I'll make about 1,000 to 2,000 casts in a day. Because the last thing I want to do when I'm on the water is think about, okay, I need to do this, I need to do that. I want to get on the water and fish. I want to be able to grab my rod, yank off my fly line or my skagit head off the water, go forward, tuck my rod under my arm, and start stripping big poppers and hooking in the fish. So the last thing that I need to do is to be overthinking about every critical detail, which should have been taken care of before I hit the water. So for me, I would say I'm my worst enemy. I am constantly trying to become a better fisherman and caster. Yeah. And I can't do that if I'm only making 100 casts a week. Right. I am not a recreational fisherman. I work at Bass Pro Shop full time. I run the fly department there here in Orlando. 
when I'm not here, when I'm not there, I'm tying flies um, and talking to people every single day, trying to get fly fishing a little push. Right. Because if everybody could have as much fun fly fishing as I do or you or the guys at Fair Flies, um, man, I think we'd have a bigger community of fly fishermen. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Sounds like, I mean, you could hear the passion in, in, you know, you talking about this. It sounds like something that, you know, we definitely got to get down there and, and give this a shot. And you mentioned a couple of things I wanted to hit on, mm-hmm. you know, fair flies and, uh, and they're actually zag.fish is where we're sending people out now because at zag.fish, they have some other resources and things like mm-hmm. that. But fair flies is cool because they've got a unique style of materials and you've been using them. Maybe we can dig into that a little bit and tie it into, you know, whether it's the tarpon or some of the other stuff you do, what are the flies you're using there? And then how are those fair flies like brushes or the fly fur, things like that? Okay. So, so the pre-made fair fly brushes, I think are the end all to be all. I'm taking and fabricating monster hooks where when you look at my poppers, all right, they're on five out to seven out hooks. I've got a fair fly popper I'm looking at right now that has a monster popper head on a custom-made hook that I fabricated to extend it back behind it. And it's about seven inches long, something that you would fish for pike and muskie. I throw that stuff down here for largemouth bass and tarpon, okay? Yeah. So when we talk about people that have a traditional mindset, well, John, you're not supposed to throw big poppers like that for tarpon. <laughs> well, why not? Well, you're supposed to use like a schminnow or the tarpon toad, or you're supposed to use the paleo worm, okay, and and you're supposed to do this, and you're supposed to do that. Well, one day, many years ago, I got tired of hearing that, and I says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to throw me big poppers, all right? I am going to make variations that are going to make your head spin, and now, because of it, some of my personal best fish have been on seven-inch poppers that you would use for muskie. Wow. I have the biggest speckled sea trout this season for 2022 at 29 and a half inches, 10.2 pounds. I have two witnesses, <laughs> my friend Ryan and my buddy Derek Holmes, master taxidermy. And we hooked that after an 11 hour day of fishing, 30 minutes after the sun went down and the fishing was hard that day, but it goes back to solidify that. At certain times, if there's a big predator fish and he hears that big popper going through the water, he's going to come up and crush it. Yeah. So here's the color that I used to catch that fish. It was the chartreuse and like green and yellow flash with orange. Oh, yeah. From Fairflies. Okay. And when we hooked it, I was like, oh, well, welcome to the Florida. We, we're five fishing with the big poppers today. <laughs> and when that speckled sea trout crushed my popper, I was like, oh, man, Derek, I got something on there. So then it started pulling line. I'm like, hey, Derek, do me a favor. Get the net, buddy. I'm not playing. There's something big on here. When he scooped it up, we were amazed at how monstrous in the girth that that fish was. I fished that same spot for the last six years. That is the biggest speckled sea trout I have ever seen on a fly. Hmm. But going back to the poppers and having the ability to have a company like Fairflies, it has given me the ability to totally change how I tie my flies. So then all the guys that come down here from Brazil, when they come into the fly fishing department at Bass Pro Shop, and you see all the pictures of the fish I'm talking about, and I've got on display like eight inch poppers with stinger hooks that you would use for pike. 
these guys are like, hey, who tied the fly? I tied it. Oh, really? Yeah, how long are you guys in town for? Well, we'll be here for a couple of days. Do me a favor. If you want to come back tonight or tomorrow morning, I will set up a bunch of vices and we'll sit there and tie flies. Nice. So that's how I run the fly department at Bass Pro is I don't care what we've got going on. I have the green light. If somebody can't come when I have a scheduled class, I can carve out time for them. And when they leave, I will tie them a fly that they're going to take back home with them, that they might have not an opportunity to tie themselves. Right. What are those uh, poppers? Like describe that, the tying of the popper, like that fly, say the one you're using on tarpon. Okay, so basically what I'm doing is if I was taking a Gamagatsu J-hook, I'll use a 4-out or a 5-out, and I'll start building. If I'm using the Fairfly's pre-made brushes, I'll put a synthetic tail, like a chartreuse tail, and with their yellow and chartreuse material, I'll basically start palming it back to create a huge body. Mm-hmm. So you got the Gamagatsus and you got the mm-hmm. you got the brush and you're going to palmer out the fair flies like that chartreuse brush. Mm-hmm. And then what's the next step? So the next step is once you create the tail and the body that you want on that big popper, you're going to put the popper head on there. You're going to you know glue it so that it doesn't uh, move around. And then the next thing that I do is instead of having the hook ride below the popper head, I twist it so that the point of the hook is riding up. So now you have a totally weedless popper that can go across lily pads for bass, hydrilla for bass, and then you can throw it into the mangroves for snook and tarpon and redfish and sea trout. Mm -hmm. And then I would add to this, the people that influence my fly tying are some of the fellows from the Norvice Pro staff that I'm a part of, and gentlemen like Gunnar Brammer, Niklaus Bauer from Sweden, uh, Bob Popovics, uh, my good friend Bob Clauser, you guys would get a hoot out of Bob. He sits there and tells me that I make 150 foot casts with a spay rod look so easy that, you know, I cast farther than his last vacation. Is that Clauser? That's Bob Clauser. Yeah. And when Bob says it, it's really funny. So when he's at the club meetings that I belong to, you know, we'll sit there and talk and he'll go, Hey John, how far did you throw this week? I heard you were able to cast all the way to Jacksonville. <laughs> but the nice thing is when we talk about tarpon, tarpon or predator fish. We're in a tropical climate, so the methods that guys would use for catching big stripers and uh, smallmouth bass and largemouth bass and pike and muskie, anybody that can understand those species. When you come to Florida and you throw a fly rod, you will hook into more fish than most anybody down here because you understand the predator fish mentality. So going back to the big popper situation, I've had fish that probably had a goal almost 50 inches, take that monster popper, blast it out of the water. The popper goes into the trees. The tarpon goes over to the left because they didn't hook themselves. But it just goes to show you how water push and sound are affecting my fishing down here. And it just doesn't work for tarpon. It works on all the other species that I would like to target. Mm -hmm. So I have a certain recipe for building my poppers, whether they're something small that's like two, three inches all the way up to eight and 10 inch long poppers. Yeah. Here's an example. Everybody likes the gurgler, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, take a panfish popper head, like those little foam ones. And before you finish wrapping the foam on your gurgler popper, put that on your hook, take the foam that's going to layer on top of it, whip it behind the little panfish popper, and then UV glue that whole thing. And now you've got something that's different. Okay. So I call it the spitter. 
the spitter gurgler. All right. So with the little tiny panfish popper and you go to yank your strip, it's pushing water differently than a traditional gurgler. That is one of my go-to patterns for everything that we're talking about down here in Florida. Hmm. So it's doing something a little bit different. It's kind of acting differently than what they're used to or what they see out there. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So when I look at a pattern or a recipe that someone is tying, I want to sit there and go, okay, how can I put my personality into that pattern? So since I love catching pike and muskie, but I can't do it down here in Florida, I'll sit there and get on YouTube and watch the Canal Gratis YouTube channels. I'll watch Niklaus Bauer. I'll watch all these Swedish fly fishermen that, in my opinion, really have their game together. They're all dialed in. They're extraordinary to the point where they're using so much polar flash on some of their patterns, and they're crushing the northern pike in Sweden. They're not just catching pike. They're catching trout. I mean, we're talking about guys that are catching multiple species with different fly patterns. Uh, Niklaus Bauer ties a Clouser minnow with a tiny blade behind it, like a little bit longer blade behind the tail and the hook of the fly. Well, my friends, Derek Paul and I, we tie that same pattern down here. And it's one of the most effective redfish flies that we utilize currently down in the west part of uh, Florida mm -hmm. in the Bayport area for redfish. Now, that same pattern with a little bit of blade, I take like a teardrop blade, which is a little bit shorter and fatter, and I'm catching bass and I'm catching uh, snook and tarpon on it. <laughs> oh, well, geez, John, you're not supposed to do that. So when we go to talk to Bob Clouser, Bob's like, oh, yeah, th there's guys that have done that stuff, you know, 20, 30 years ago. But for some reason, some of the people today are like, oh, well, geez, you're not supposed to put that in a fly. It's not really a fly now. Now you turned it into a spinnerbait. Hey, look, I don't have time to split hairs with anybody. Right. I just want to go out and fish and have a good time. So if something different that's outside the traditional way of tying a fly gives me more fish and I can have more fun and enjoying myself, why would I want to not do it? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So you're doing and you're just painting the picture of all the diversity, like you said at the start, diversity of species and fishing types out there. And you've just kind of honed in your your method with the spay, like we talked about, and the poppers. Mm -hmm. And if we take it back to that tarpon, you know, I just want to verify this. So if we're on the bank, you're casting, you're making that cast. So you got your popper, you got your skagit line. Once you make the cast out there and it hits the water, describe what the fly does and then what you do to hook into tarpon. Okay, I'm going to break it down as if we were still doing a uh, spay cast. Yeah. All right. So if we're on the shoreline, you could sit there and do either a spay rod roll cast, or you could sit there and do like a snap tee mm -hmm. or a peripoke cast. And once that fly hits the water and you've got your rod tucked underneath your arm and you start pulling uh, the fly line, you want to be really aggressive with these guys. All right. So once I pull in a, the fly line to where I'm tight to the fly line, and everything is looking good. When I go to retrieve my line with my left hand, I'm making either short little strokes of a few inches at a time, or I'll stand to the side and I'll pull two to three feet hmm. per strip. Once that popper goes under the water, it's going to create a bubble trail. And then as it hesitates while I get my fly line straight and start another retrieve, I'm waiting after the pause. And a lot of times, as soon as you start twitching that popper in the water, if the conditions are really good after a good rain, those tarpon will come up and literally hit your popper 
just as you make it twitch. But then there's days where they're more selective where you've got to try, you know, a really fast retrieve, you know, where you're going strip, 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 and bam, they hit it. Mm. Okay. Then since we're using a Skagit type head, before you start your roll cast going forward, pause, count to 10 to as long as 30 and see if you've got a selective fish that's going to wait and come up and grab that popper. Cause there's a lot of times with guys that I fish with, they'll get ready to make their forward cast. And just as they make that fly or that popper move, boom, they got a fish coming up and getting it. But then because they've got their in motion already, they can't strip set to set the hook and they end up losing the fish. So that's why I tell guys, Hey, look at before you pick up that line to make your back cast, give it a little twitch. There's no need to rush and make a farther cast. So for anybody that likes using like OPST mm-hmm. uh, Skagit heads or any type of uh, short head, and you're used to fishing in really tight spots, when you come down to Florida, you are going to flourish here. Hmm. That's it. Even though it's big, there's still lots of tight areas where that little Skagit. There's still lots of tight areas where I'll take that big seven inch popper. I'll take my spay rod. I'll pull the line off, pointing the rod up at the sky going behind my head. As I'm coming down and going forward, I'll tilt the rod to the right and I'll take a seven inch popper and I will throw it in a mangrove area where the tree branches are 12 inches above the water. Hmm. And I know it sounds like I'm bragging, but I've got a lot of people that'll back me up on that statement because I'm out there practicing all the time while I'm fishing. Yeah. Okay. So for guys that are not used to casting like that, that's going to be a challenge. So I've been going out there for the last several years. And I've put myself in positions where, man, John, you know, you're going to lose your fly. Well, okay. If losing a fly here and there gives me the ability to become a better accuracy caster, I'm going to take advantage of it. And a lot of times when you're throwing that popper or a bait fish pattern, once that fly twitches, a lot of times you'll get a fish coming up and smashing it. Yep. And then sometimes you might have to pull, you know, the whole skagit head through the tip of the rod and you might hook into a fish literally within five feet of the shoreline. What kind of species would you be hooking in right in close? You'll be hooking into anything from a redfish to a speckled sea trout to a snook or a tarpon. The particular area that I go near the Mosquito Lagoon, those are pretty much four of your more popular species that people will go after. Hooking into a tarpon reminds me of, of a smallmouth bass, a steelhead, and a pike all in one fish. <laughs> and on a good day where the water temperature is really warm and those fish are super active, you know, hooking into 10, 15, 20 pound fish, I mean, they'll, they'll leap out of the water as many as eight or nine times before you get them to the shoreline, take the hook out. Yeah, that's amazing. And then on spay gear, like you're going, wow, holy cow. This fish is really, really tugging. So when we're talking about fighting fish and doing the best thing to the fish, to me, the spay rod is the end all the be all because you can hook into bigger fish. Yeah. The advantages outweigh the disadvantages. And when you become good at it, you'll be able to take, say, a 20 pound tarpon that's going to be probably 50 inches or so. Okay. Between 40, 50 inches and have that fish hooked back in the water in less than four or five minutes. Right. That's pretty good. Because you can really put the heat to those fish. As compared to if you're out, say, in a 
out doing something like in a boat where you're, I guess you're using mm -hmm. like whatever, a nine weight, 10 weight, something like that, or bigger, right? Maybe 12 weight. Yep. But out there, it's a little different, right? It's a little different. Okay. So the nice thing about the thing that I like about the spay rod gear is say you're using a 13 foot eight weight. Okay. So since I work for Bass Pro, I have the Cabela's Vector two-handed fly rod. It's a 13 foot eight weight, four piece rod. It's a fast action rod. Now, you might like it, you might not. If you fish with me and you see what I do with it, you're going to like it because it is one of my my favorite rods and it didn't cost me $1,000 or $1,400. But the benefit of that rod is when you look at the construction, it's got the buck section, butt section comparable to a 12 and 13 weight fly rod. So now the longer rod gives you the ability to really fight fish. And that's why I've always admired spay rod fishermen when you look at some of the salmon these guys catch in the Pulaski River in New York, where I'm from, you know, these guys are catching 40, 50 pound fish right. on spay gear. Look at the guys in the Pacific Northwest. I mean, you know, look at guys like, you know, uh, Ed Ward and Oliver Sutro, okay, and um, and some of the other guys and like George Cook and all these really famous guys that have catapulted spay rod fishing to a whole new level. These guys are experts at hooking big fish. So if you understand that and you use the methodology, why would you not want to use the spay rod? Exactly. Yeah, no, spay rods. I think that was always the, that was always one of the things. I remember when early on when they were all big and heavy and things like that, that was a thought. That, oh, yeah, no. Right? Not anymore. My Sage Igniter and Sage Method two-handed fly rod in a 15-foot 10 weight, Sage took those rods and made the tips a lot more stiffer than the traditional blanks that most guys use. So when they classify it and say, oh, well, it's a fast action. Well, if you really read the description, it's an ultra fast action blank. When you go to pick up a 450 grain head or 600 grain head, and then you got a sink tip that weighs, say, another 120 grains, you're yanking that off the water so easily because the rod's doing all the work. And then once you start to go back, and start to push and pull forward, the tip of the rod does all the work. And the next thing you know it, you've just increased a tighter loop on your forward cast because everybody gets wound up about, well, you know, you got to have a tight loop to make your casts more correctly. Yeah, I agree with that to a point, but try doing that with a 12-inch streamer. Right. Okay? Yep. All right? You're not going to do it on a 9-foot rod. You take a 13-foot or a 15-foot rod, and you have that all dialed in, you'll be able to take the biggest pike and musky flies and chuck them over a hundred feet on one forward cast with a tight, uh, like a tighter loop with a tighter loop. And this is one of the reasons why I prefer a little bit stiffer spay rod. And it doesn't matter if it's 13 feet or not. Now getting into that, that's like a whole other show yeah. because I don't want to open up Pandora's box on the different actions of the rod. Yeah, that is a lot. <laughs> I'm only going to say, what works for me down here. Now I'm not a big guy. I'm five, seven, I'm about 167 right now. Okay. I'm pretty lean. I'm athletic, but the benefit of the two handed fly rod for me is that I get super tight loops on my forward cast. I'm throwing monster flies. And then if you fish on an elevated platform, like the, like my pickup truck. Okay. So here's how I fish in shore sometimes. So if I'm in an area where I need to see fish. I got a little Ford F-150 with a toolbox on it. I stand on top of my toolbox. I park my truck lengthwise so that I'm parallel with the water. Oh, nice. And now I can see significantly more because I'm elevated. 
Well, guess what just happened with my cast? I go from, say, 135-foot cast, and now I'm in the 150-foot cast range because now I'm higher. I can arc my cast up and outwards. So now, as my Skagit head is traveling with my fly, it's going up and out and farther right. than if I go straight forward. Yep. All right? But it goes back to practice. I practice all those different variation casts, and that gives me insane distance with a fishing application and i never fish alone and there's enough people here in orlando including bob clouser himself that will tell you yeah he just told you the truth today's episode is sponsored by zag.fish who was founded with the idea of finding ethical solutions to fly tying products and services they've done just that by creating jobs for marginalized people both in the u.s and abroad They've got uh, everything covered. We've had a recent episode on with uh, John Grosta, who talked about uh, some of the great products they have with the, the fishing he does in Florida uh, with the Fairflies brushes. They've got the 5D brushes and their uh, fly fur, which is pretty amazing. Tons of people are loving this stuff for its durability and the speed that allows you to tie flies. John talked about that on the podcast uh, and he said that just uh, basically it's going to add on at least 15 to 20 minutes to uh, each fly you tie if you're not using these brushes. Zag also has uh, Wasatch custom angling tools in their satchel with over 50 uh, custom heirloom tools that go along with your materials. So they are a true do-it-yourself company and you got to check out zag.fish right now. If you want to, you can head over to wetflyswing.com zag and you can get 20% off your first order by clicking through that link and uh, let them know you heard uh, of them through this podcast and you'll get that 20% discount right now. That's wetflyswing.com slash Zag, Z-A-G. Okay, back to the show. So you actually use where you can your pickup as a tool for not only seeing the fish, but also casting to get more uh, elevation above and distance out. Absolutely. So here's an, a quick elevation situation. So there's a place in Florida and Melbourne called Sebastian Inlet. And it's, you know, it's a jetty. All right. The highest point of the jetty above the beach is probably close to 20 feet above the water. There's a railing there. I basically put my stomach and stripping basket against the railing. I heave back and launch it forward, and I will consistently make 162-foot-long casts with big streamers because I'm arcing out, and I'm arcing up and out. So now my fly has a farther pathway till it hits the water. So then the most popular question I get is, well, geez, you know, hey, Johnny, what are you going to do when you hook a fish? Hey, buddy, let me hook the fish first. I'll worry about yeah. landing it later. That's right. Okay. Because what we'll do is if it's a big fish, we'll just walk along the railing, jump over the railing, get on the beach, and then fight the fish on the beach. But a lot of the fish are going to be, you know, near the rocks and that. So sometimes a long cast isn't necessary. But if you see, you know, mullet getting blasted on snook and, and in there 150 feet away from the rocks, that's a perfect, perfect situation for you to develop your long casting skill to get your fly to those fish. There's always enough people there to help you out. So if you're by yourself, like I do from time to time, I don't really have to worry about landing fish because I can always ask somebody to help me. Yeah. There's always people fishing, whether it's fly or whatever. Always people fishing. I've even taken step ladders with me. 
to where if I'm driving down uh, a dirt road and there's, you know, tree branches and bushes that are seven feet above the water, I'll just stand on top of that stepladder and cast on, you know, towards the middle section. So now my fly is above and I'm still throwing 135 foot cast in an overhead casting situation. Yeah. But then if I get back into um, another area, I could be 30 feet above the water. Right. So I take advantage of the elevation factor. But having a pickup truck with a toolbox on the back, yeah, buddy. Yeah. You're real safe up there. Yeah, right. That's definitely a good tip, especially if you have, like you said, stuff in front of you or you just want to get a little bit mm-hmm. extra distance. Well, this is good. I, I'm just kind of thinking as we look around. And remind me again as, as you're um, where you are, the Bass Pro, where you lived there in Florida. Okay. So I live in a in a town called Winter Garden, Florida, which is west of downtown Orlando. I'm near Lake Apopka, which is a really good bass fishing lake. I am near Stark Lake in Okoye, which is another good lake. Like the freshwater fishing here for me as a fly fisherman, you don't need a boat to fish. I don't have a boat and I can go for bass. I can go for tilapia. Um, There's places where, you know, you can pull into a parking lot at a mall and walk across the street and you can throw your fly rod into a lake that goes under a bridge. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just the freshwater applications here are just readily available. Right. And then to go out to Titusville and Merritt Island or to Coco, it takes me about an hour and 25 minutes from where I live at to go there. And then the other thing is by working at Bass Pro Shop, I can share all this nice uh, intel and experiences with local fly fishermen or people on vacation. And we've got all kinds of fish down here. Right. That's the tip I was going to ask you. Yeah. So so the cool thing is bucket list fishermen. My friend Derek Paul and I, We've caught literally hundreds of koi carp and grass carp down here on the fly rod. And then most anybody that knows who we are, once they see the pictures in the fly shop, they're like, hey, is that a koi carp? Is that a Japanese koi? Yeah. How do you catch it? Well, okay, this is this is where you want to go. This is the time of year you want to do it. Here's the fly that you're going to want to do it. You're going to want to take some dog or cat food and chum them up when they're actively eating that dog and cat food. You chuck your fly out into the water, and if it's six inches or less in front of their nose, they will crush it. So if you're looking to get grass carp and koi carp, that's the method that's worked for me. I got the pictures at Bass Pro to back it up. Yep, perfect. And I think what we're going to do is have to send some people your way for some of these other topics. And the Bass Pro Shop is in which town? Where where can they track that down? So the Bass Pro Shop I work at is in Orlando off of International Drive. It's been there for approximately, I think it's 22 years. Yeah. Okay. And we've got one of the biggest fly departments um, in the Bass Pro Shop chain. They're open seven days a week. I'm there five days a week. I've got guys in the fishing department that if I'm not there and somebody comes in, um, if it's a question they can't take care of, they'll either call me or shoot me a text. And we'll always make sure that someone gets taken care of when I'm there or when I'm not there. Yeah, perfect. This is awesome. And and so I think this is a good resource if they do have questions on any other species that we don't cover. Because I did want to talk about just kind of if somebody was thinking, you know, coming down towards Orlando, like you said, or towards Florida, into Florida for vacationing, you know, how could they make sure to get some fishing in? And it sounds like the best way, like a lot of times is going to your local fly shop, if you can find one or like here, you know, your local bass pro shop and pick the brain. So what would you tell somebody if they were coming in again, they wanted to hit this tarpon. If we take it back to tarpon, there's a lot of other things. Okay. But... If we're going to use tarpon, 
and you're coming to Orlando, you're going to want to go towards the Titusville and Merritt Island area. The Canaveral Seashore Park is a federal park, and you're going to fish the canal areas. You're going to look for uh, culverts or drainage tubes. And when the water is free flowing and exiting on the side of the drainage tube, that's going to be a good spot for you. The best time to hook into tarpon for novice or intermediate fly fishermen is in the rainy season. Mm. Yeah, I know it's going to be hot down here, but I'm telling you, what's more important, dealing with the heat no. or hooking into a bucketless <laughs> fish that or hooking into a tarpon? So if it was raining yesterday and today and the rain front's moving out, Tonight and tomorrow morning and the next few days are going to be fantastic because once you get a little bit of that fresh water hitting the brackish salt water, it stimulates those tarpon to where they're like little Pac-Men hmm. where if it's a windy day and you see leaves hit the water, they will come up and eat a leaf and think it's something to eat. Oh, wow. Okay. So when Hurricane Ian came through, it pretty much devastated the state of Florida and a lot of the parts. And I feel really bad for some people. But in the Titusville area and the Canaveral Seashore, it made the tarpon fish in it the best it's been in the last six years. Two weeks ago, I was out there. I landed 12 tarpon, hooked into 18, lost several fish, and I field tested probably six different fly rods mm. from Bass Pro Shop. All spay? Uh, no, actually, nine foot four and five weights and nine foot eight weights of different models and whatnot. Oh, wow. Now on some of the freshwater gear, those fly lines, they stretch. Okay. On the saltwater gear that I use, including my spay gear, my line's a low stretch system. So if you're going to fly fish down here, use the tropical lines that don't have any line stretch to it. Okay. Make sure your hooks are super sharp. They'll hit anything from like a little Clouser minnow at about two inches long to big streamers that are seven, eight inches long. They'll hit little bass poppers. They'll hit big bass poppers. <laughs> okay. Um, if you see tarpon that are rolling and then say you see bubbles in the water and then a few feet later, you see another bubble. That's another indication that you have a lot of fish going up and down the canalways. And if you're used to fishing for pike where you're ripping your fly through the water, those methods will put you on fish. Gotcha. Perfect. And this is something that people, it sounds like, I mean, kind of a DIY sort of thing. Are there people that are kind of, uh, you know, are there guides kind of doing this down there, that, what you're talking about today on Tarpon? There's several guides that I network with down here in Florida. I take a lot of people fishing, uh, a lot of my colleagues at Bass Pro Shop. I've got guys coming out to the Canaveral Seashore where they've got eight, nine Tarpon in a row hmm. using a bait caster and a zero spook catching fish. I've got a video on my TikTok page where we were field testing the Dogwood Canyon 8-weight on a nice, solid 10-pound tarpon. And that was a lot of fun. And the nice thing is you don't have to be a long-distance caster to hook into these fish because most of the waterways are pitched down. And then if you can make a good 20 to 30-foot cast with a little popper or a bait fish pattern, you will hook in the fish. Hmm. Now, here's another thing, all right? There's areas where you can wade and be safe and still hook into these fish. But if you don't want to do that, there's places you can park your rental car, fish from shore, bring a net with you, hook those fish and have a good time. Right. It sounds like it's just like the diversity. That's the cool thing down there is that there's a, 
a lot of species and it's not that difficult to find a place to fish. Is that true around Florida? No, it's not. In Florida, like literally you could take one day and freshwater fish and catch six or seven different species. You could go out to say Cocoa Beach or say New Smyrna Beach, and then you could start targeting saltwater fish. If you had a multiple fly rod setup like most hardcore guys do, and you've got intermediate and sinking lines, you could utilize all that stuff. And then if you're a spay rod guy that's experienced in catching salmon and steelhead and and whatever else you want to catch, and you're used to fishing in tight spaces and using skagit heads with sink tips and intermediate tips, you're going to flourish down here. Yeah. What was the timing on that tarpon? When is the rainy season the good time to hit those? The rainy season is usually... Like from like my personal experience, the best time to fish for tarpon, you can catch them all year round. Yeah. If I'm taking somebody fishing with me, I try to take them between June. I take them June, July, August, September, October, and November while it's still really hot. Gotcha. So even right now, kind of November-ish, it's still, you can still catch some tarpon. Yeah. You can still catch some tarpon too. And then the other thing is I like to see how, how the water is. Okay. So I'll stick my hand in the water. If the water's a little bit cooler, then that means I can get out in the water a little bit later. When it's super hot, like in June, July, August, and September, we try to get on the water half an hour before the sun rises, okay? And then, say, from uh, 6.30 to about 8.30 in the morning, that's like prime time for you to start crushing fish. Now, every once in a while, if you fish all day long, you can catch a straggler here and there by changing up your patterns and and the size of your fly, okay? And then at night, you've got a smaller window where the fishing will pick back up again. But the nice thing is for anybody that loves to fly fish and you really are into figuring things out, come down here and fish with me. Yeah. You're going to have fun. You will hook in the fish. And when you go back, you're going to go, wow, I can't believe I fished with that little short Elmer Fudd looking Johnny Grasso with the spay rod. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Well, that's one of the cool things about the spay. You said it. I mean, for anybody, sometimes, yeah, I mean, a longer rod, especially if you're not super tall, that can give you, a, like you said, the height you need. And if you're a good caster, height doesn't matter at all, right? You got the spay, you could cast 150 feet. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And then here's the other thing. Here's the other benefit of the spay rod. I've got guys, because I'm also the program director for the Florida Fly Fishing Association. Oh, yeah. That's out of Coco. And I have several older gentlemen that are in their 80s. They're using spay rods because they can use both hands. They pinch in the line with their right hand. They keep their elbows close to their body. They come back, stop the rod tip at two. They go forward and stop at 10. And I've got gentlemen in their 80s throwing 100 feet with one false cast. Yeah, that's awesome. With 11-foot switch rods and a six-weight, all the way up to 14-foot and 15-foot, 9- and 10-weight rods. So I think if more people were aware that you could utilize the spay rod, I think more guys would want to do it. Even Rex Hansen, that owns Worldwide Flyworks in Jensen Beach, was telling me they're using spay rods in Mexico for permit and bonefish because they can make longer, more delicate casts where they don't have to double haul. Yeah, it is. Yeah, anybody that makes a double haul cast at 100 feet is an elite level caster. Right, that's not easy. It's not easy. Most guys, if they're throwing 65, 70 feet, 
and that's the best they can do, how are they supposed to get another 30 feet in their cast if that's the best they can? So now most guys that grow up fishing, like myself, we learned how to use a spinning rod. Most of the time you use a spinning rod with the left hand at the bottom, right hand up above it. You go back and go forward and you're done. So why can't you take that same technique from the spinning rod uh, guys and apply it to the two-handed fly rod? It's just like doing a roll cast with a spay rod and pinching your running line. And then when you stop at 10 o'clock, man, you're already at like 80, 100 feet. Right. With just the basic roll cast. Just easy. You know, and then to be able to wade, like going down to the Florida Keys. All right. Anybody that wanted to catch, you know, bonefish and permit and other species in the Florida Keys, and you like to wade like I do, that is a perfect place for you to go to. That's amazing. So basically you're saying, you know, in, in your satchel on the way down, you need, it sounds like regardless of where you're going, a spay rod would be a great tool to have with you if you're heading to Florida. I believe I believe that wholeheartedly. Even if you're going on a boat with a guide down to the, um, you know, the keys, especially if you're not a great caster, if you can't cast. And like you said, a lot of people, I, I mean, I'm not a great caster mm-hmm. once it gets out to a hundred feet with a nine foot eight weight and I'm trying to double haul. I mean, that's not easy to do. Oh no, it's not. So, but with a, with the spay rod, 90 feet is pretty easy to do. Listen, if you were only good at a 90 foot cast with say a 13 foot eight weight spay rod, listen, you will make your fishing dreams and experiences and catapult it to a higher level. I took my Sage Igniter and Billy Pate anti-reverse tarpon rail, and I put several flies on my setup 32 miles off the Florida Keys, catching multiple Amoco jacks. And then once I hooked into one, I stuck my spay rod in the water and I started figure eight in it like I was fishing for muskie. Oh, nice. Okay. So I had gotten resistance about fly fishing on that charter. Once I was able to hook into the first few fish, my captain was like, okay, let's try and get you on, on something big. So nobody's ever used a spay rod on a boat 32 miles off the Florida Keys with pelagic fish. All right. And then as the day transpired, I'm on the front of the boat and I'm getting swells and I've got witnesses that'll back up my story. And I'm still making hundred plus foot casts with heavy sinking lines. I was using 650 grain sinking right. uh, shooting head that I, that I put on there. And those are heavy to cast because you got to pull in a lot of line. And then it's not like the boat was totally stable. I mean, I felt like I was in Jane Fonda's aerobic class, my <sighs> my hamstrings, my, my obliques, my serratus muscles by my rib cage, my abdominals, man, I was sore the next day from that trip. Okay. But it basically showed me that if you want to do something bad enough and you're willing to put the time and and the work into it, you can make it happen. Yeah. But when you get down to the Florida keys, you've got all these bridges that you could pull your vehicle over where if it says you're allowed to fish, you could get on the rocks and you could fish for tarpon. You could go wade fishing. If you took a boat out and you anchored the boat and get out and start wade fishing for bonefish and permit. I've got a friend of mine by the name of Jim Glass. He's down in the Keys. He's 84 years old or 85 years old. He's trying to catch permit and bonefish with an 11 foot six weight. Perfect. Okay. If he catches a permit on the switch rod, he'll be the first guy down here to do it. Yeah. 
And are you guys doing are all these casts, like you said, when you're out there 30 miles out with your heavy sinking spay, are you, is this all waterborne or do you occasionally take that and cast like a, a full, just a back cast with it? Okay. So if I'm on the boat and I'm on the right side of the boat, all right, I will tilt my rod to the right and I can either do a roll cast or I can pull the fly out of the water and make it more of a side cast instead of going straight forward. Okay. So if I'm trying not to hit the boat, okay, because that was the biggest concern that the captain had. He goes, I don't want you damage on my boat. Right. <laughs> he goes, I've had a thousand fly guys on my charters in the last 20 years, Johnny. And he says, and every single fly guy that's been telling me, oh, I've been fly fishing for 20 years. I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. And then here I am saying, hey, look at buddy. I know what I'm doing. Hey, look at you sound just like the rest of the guys from New York. We'll believe <laughs> right. it when I see it. So once I was able to show them how careful I am, I never hit the boat in the whole day efficient. So, but that he said that's an exception. But the cool thing is you don't have to really be a good caster to take a spay rod or a 13 foot spay rod and go fish off the boat. I've got another guide friend of mine that is in Virginia Beach by the name of Hunter Myers. He fishes for white marlin with a 15 foot 10 weight because he can sit there at the back of the boat and make a side cast yeah, and then go forward and make 120, 130 foot casts and hook, and hook in the white marlin. Oh, right. And then when we're talking about pelagic fish with that same setup, I rigged him up a 100 pound core, 25 foot head or 24 foot head that weighed about 460 grains or 450 grains for his Skagit head to 98 pound previa total from Ronaldo Enterprises. That's the company I use for my running line. And he basically straightened out a 12 out tuna hook on a fly I tied up for him. Cause after 45 minutes of fighting that fish, he's like, I'm done. And he put the rod in the water. He straightened it out so that the fish was straight to the line. When that fish pulled, it got slack. He pulled everything in and the running line was intact. His shooting head was intact. And when he looked at the hook, it looked like Steve Austin just went and straightened it right out on you. Damn. And how big was that hook? A 12-odd tuna hook. Wow. Damn. I tied it on a 12-odd mustad. That's crazy. So what are the what are the leader? What's the leader look like on your well, I guess you could look at that setup or a tarpon setup. Okay, so if I'm using a 13-foot eight weight, which is probably a more popular rod for guys to use, you can run, say, uh, say like a commando head or any type of 24-foot Skagit head in, in, say, the 450 grain, I'll take, uh, if I'm using Berkeley Big Game Trilene as a leader, I'll start at 5 feet of 60. Then I'll go down to 3 feet of 50, 3 feet of 40, and then 3 feet of 20, and then whatever my tippet's going to be, the fly or my shock leader, okay? Um, about 5 feet from the fly, I take one of those little saltwater spro swivels and the reason for the swivel is if you put the swivel on the leader on your forward cast you will prevent the fly from pigtailing as it's going forward okay so when i'm using the bigger flies including those monster poppers that i create it spirals behind you so the more line you have behind you when you're coming forward on the forward cast that fly line or that running line is in the shooting head it's going to spiral like a pigtail if you don't eliminate the line twist from your forward cast, when you go to put the running line in your stripping basket or if it oh. hits the ground, it's going to start twisting and twisting and twisting yep. and you're going to be in big trouble. 
okay? So I've reduced a tremendous amount of line pigtailing, which gives me the ability to make cast after cast after cast without my monofilament running line birds nesting like on a bait caster. So if you don't look at those key factors with mono running line, you're going to have a bird's nest all day long. Now, if you're using a nylon coated running line, say from like scientific anglers, or if you use like the OPST products, all right, you know, you have superior products to your advantage. And when you can reduce the line twist on all those spay rod setups, you'll be able to make longer casts, have more fun and not have an issue. Gotcha. And remind us again on the night around the removing the line twist. Is that just on the terminal tackle adding or what is the main ways to do that? All right. So basically, if I'm going to make a 15 foot leader at the 10 foot mark, I'm going to put that spro swivel. Yeah. So that swivel does it all. So that swivel will reduce all the line twist. Oh, significantly. It will reduce your line twist. Yep. Perfect. It's just like if you get on YouTube and you type in fly fishing for pike and muskie and you start scrolling through the videos you will see videos of fly fishermen chucking monster flies. And then when you look at the coils of their fly line, it starts twisting and twisting and twisting and twisting. And then some guys will tell you, yeah, I have to put all the fly line in the water without the fly and, and drive the boat around for a couple of minutes. So it straightens up my <laughs> right. fly line. If you utilize the techniques I'm using, you won't have any line twist in your fly fishing. And that applies to a nine foot fly rod or to the spay rods. It's more critical on the spay rod because you're using two hands to push forward and you're generating a tighter loop. Yeah, there's a lot of twist. Yeah, and a lot of line speed. So depending on the pattern of fly you're using, you're going to create that line twist or the guys down here, they call it, hey, John, you're pigtailing. Yeah, pigtailing. Yeah, exactly. And there's a lot more. That's the thing with the spay versus the single hand. There's a lot more of exactly. twisting. That's why you always have to check, you know, check your ferrules. Oh, yeah, you want to check your ferrules, you know, but if you're meticulous about that kind of fishing, you will flourish down here. Yeah. And it's not just the saltwater fish. I mean, if you had a bucket list of species to go after, all right, and we started with freshwater, you got several species of bluegill, you got catfish, <laughs> you got chain pickerel, you've got tilapia, you've got largemouth bass, you have warmmouth bass, you've got armor catfish. You've got grass carp. You've got koi carp. All right. Um, uh, even from time to time, you'll catch a wild shiner on like a little trout nymph. Mm. Right. So th there's 10 species right there. Yeah. And then if you want to target salt water, you got mangrove snappers, you got redfish, you got uh, moonfish, you got ladyfish, <laughs> you got snook, tarpon, I mean, speckled sea trout. I mean, it's it jack carvals. I mean, you could sit here and come to Florida in the right conditions and hook into 20 different species down here. Yeah. Well, let's take us around just really quickly around Florida. I mean, it's obviously we can't do it justice because Florida is huge, but we've been talking a lot about, I mean, you're in the Orlando area and you're kind of like, I'd almost say mid, mid state kind of, I mean, Florida is pretty unique. Right. We're like in the middle. So let's use Orlando. The city of Orlando is your starting point. You could drive within two hours, say two to three hours of Orlando, and you could achieve all your freshwater fishing and your saltwater fishing. You don't need a boat. You can fish from shore. If, uh, oh, I forgot peacock bass and clown knifefish. Right. Okay. So check this out. There's several guys down south, uh, a good friend of mine named John White. He's also on Facebook and I believe Instagram. 
And you could take the turnpike from Orlando, drive two and a half, three hours, pull off to the side of the road and start fishing canals and catch peacock bass. Hmm. Whether you're using a nine foot fly rod or a spay rod like I'm using, you could go after those two species of fish. You Oh, you got Oscars and Mayan siglets and clown knife fish and peacock bass. So there's four species right there that you could add to the list. Gotcha. And what are the canals? The canals are, describe that water body a little bit. Okay. So you know how like, um, like out by where you're, where you're at, you're driving down a road and you see a river that's like, say, you know, anywhere from, you know, 20 to 30 feet wide. Yeah. Our canals are very similar and they run for miles. And a lot of these canals will run parallel with a lot of the major roadways. Gotcha. So these are canals that are just created, like built by humans and, and the connecting water. Correct. Yes. Gotcha. And they connect to the all, all, all sorts. I mean, when you look at Florida, obviously, you know, it's surrounded by the ocean, but in the middle, it, throughout Florida, there's just water everywhere. There's water everywhere. Okay. And the ability to fish freshwater is literally everywhere. Every waterway. Yeah. Like, for example, just looking on the map, you look at Winter Haven, right? And I mean, yeah, there's like, I don't know how many lakes or what, whatever those are, but there's just ponds and water bodies just everywhere, just dotting the map. Exactly. So here's another fact. A lot of the big housing developments that you see that have big ponds and small lakes on them, those were owned by farmers. Okay. So a lot of these areas were sold from, you know, orange grove owners and farmers and farmland, and then they were developed. And now, because they've been in families for so long, a lot of those areas are stocked with fish. Yeah. All right. Mother nature down here is really good about stocking fish. All these long-legged birds, they'll sit there and take the fish eggs and transmit it from one body of water to another. So if you were a developer and you just put a hundred houses in here and you just dug these ponds in a year from now, you're going to have fish in there. Really? So these birds are actually, birds are coming in and uh, like uh, stocking the, the lakes. Exactly. Here's another example of how nature works. If you look at the Merritt Island Mall that's near Coco, they've got these little ponds and then they've got parks near the mall that where people walk around, they exercise and they jog and they run in this and whatever and they sightsee. Well, some of these are small uh, man-made bodies of water. Well, because Mother Nature is really cool, it's a brackish freshwater saltwater area. When little baby tarpon are able to swim through these drainage tubes and culverts, they become landlocked. Then once they start to get too big, they can't really swim out of those areas, so they're stuck in there. So you could go behind the Merritt Island Mall, catch largemouth bass and Oscars and Mayan siglets and tarpon in one spot. That's how ridiculous it is down here. Right. And like we said, it's not hard. It's more like, I guess the challenge is finding areas you can go to hit a lake that's maybe a public lake or something like that, right? Exactly. Okay. And then the nice thing is, if you don't know where to go and you can't find somebody to help you pick a spot, just get on the satellite version of Google Maps and literally within a 10 mile radius of where you're staying at, whatever resort you're staying at, you could find so many freshwater bodies of water. All you got to do is just go out there and, and look. And if you see spawning beds, uh, you know, close to the shoreline, hey, there's a green flag. Let's go. If you see dragonflies coming down and getting a drop of water and flying away and you see a swell of a fish trying to eat it, hey, there you go. There's another one. You gotcha. 
So you got the, uh, we talked about, you know, the place you, you're at, the Bass Pro. Are there many like other like fly shops around the area anywhere throughout there? Unfortunately, in Orlando, there's two fly shops. There's the Bass Pro shop in, in Orlando at iDrive, and then the Orlando Outfitters that's closer to downtown Orlando. These are the two best resources for anybody to get gear and to you know, get the lay of the land, so to speak, because most everybody that's working at both stores, you know, they've been there. The guys over there, they, they've been there for, I think, 14 or 15 years. And I know the owners over there and I, I know some of the guys that work there. And these are all local fly fishermen that have fished all these bodies of water. Okay. So with me being down here for the last 15 years, those are the two best resources for fresh and salt water. Like the big thing that's coming up now is uh, the shad run. Mm. So there's several guys that they'll wade and they'll spay rod fish for shad in the St. John's River for fresh water. Right. Back in the day, there was a lot of fly shops down here, but unfortunately, you know, uh, those are the only two resources in Orlando. Uh, there's some fly shops towards Tampa. Um, they had one over in Titusville and Merritt Island, but unfortunately that shop closed down. So there's really nothing over that way. But uh, you got places like 239 Flies Fly Shop, a uh, fantastic group of guys over there. Where's that at? That's near Tampa. Okay. So Tampa, yeah. And how well do you know, I mean, you know, just all of Florida, do you get around because you're talking, you know, middle, do you ever get up towards like the north into like the Tallahassee or any of that area? Jacksonville? I don't get a chance to get up there, but there's several guys that I know through Facebook that if somebody came to me and said, Hey, look at, I'm going to be staying in Jacksonville. Do you know anybody in that area? Yeah. Let me make a phone call and I'll be, I'll get back to you in 30 minutes. The cool thing because of the internet is that I might not know that area, but I know somebody that knows that area and I could get a lot of quick information in, in a short phone call to help somebody out. Perfect. That's what I think we're going to do here. We set the start is just use you as our main resource here. So if anybody's coming into Jacksonville or Tallahassee or even like the Everglades, right? You got a national park. I mean, I know a lot of people would love to go down there, right? Oh, yeah. Listen, listen. The Florida Everglades, all right? If you were taking like a little, like they've got all kinds of boat rental places down here. Yeah. How would that be? If I was to come to Orlando, touch base with you, it'd be like, hey, John, and and then grab a car, then head down towards the Everglades. Would that be a pretty a good trip? Absolutely. Absolutely. So there's plenty of places that are down close to the the Everglades. There's several boat rental places where they do the airboat rides and the, they'll rent you a John boat with like a little, you know, outboard motor. And all those really nice canal waterways that you could sightsee, you can fish all that stuff. Like literally, like say you were coming to Orlando and you wanted to go catch peacock bass and you want to rent a boat to go do it. Okay, take... Route 27 or the Turnpike, go past Lake Okeechobee, and I think there's a place down towards Holiday Park, but those resources are easy enough to find through the internet. And then you could go rent a boat, take a nine foot eight weight fly rod or five weight, fish like you're fishing for bass and poppers and subsurface flies and clousers and deceivers and whatever, and you would have a field day over there. Today's episode is sponsored by Fishhound Expeditions, who puts together remote Alaskan wilderness trips for that bucket list trip of a lifetime. 
And these aren't your typical lodge style trips or DIY in it. This is basically floating down the river in remote Alaska with the rainbows, the bears, and all the critters out there. But getting the luxurious uh, comforts of camping with tents and cots and good food and all that stuff. We've had Adam on in a number of episodes here and uh, and actually just give away a big trip uh, this year up to Alaska. So he's been doing some good stuff. Adam and the crew have done a great job. We were on a trip with them down on this uh, this remote section. We had the Northern Lights uh, one night. We had um, beautiful floating down the river. We had white water, uh, good food, big campfires, uh, you name it. Got some nice big rainbows, got some coho. It was just an epic all-around trip, and it definitely was a trip of a lifetime. You can head over right now if you want to check this out, wetflyswing.com slash fishhound, and check in with Adam and pick his brain to see what kind of trips they have on the list. I know they're filling up quick, so if you want to get in there for this next year, uh, check out Fishhound, F-I-S-H-H-O-U-N-T, to connect with Adam and the crew over at Fishhound. And you support this podcast by clicking through that link and, uh, and checking in with the crew. Okay, back to the show. I think you're paying the picture that it's, uh, yeah, you don't have to be a master of any of these techniques. Although the spade cast does take a little bit of time to write, to get refined to where you're, you're actually. Yeah. If you're used to fishing a river as a spade rod fisherman and you can just get through the day and make your cast coming down here with the spade rod, you're going to want to fish with somebody that that's a good caster to help you out. You might want to fish a calm day on the beach where you, you could go wade. You might want to find a cove where you could do some wade fishing on a calmer, less windy day. To basically, you want if you're not a really good spay rod fisherman, yeah. try and match the conditions that you're currently fishing in okay. when you come down here. All right, a lot of the lakes down here have a sandy bottom, you know, near the shoreline. So you could go in there with a pair of shorts and fish the same way you do up in the Pacific Northwest for bass down here if you want to do that. Yeah. So, and like you said, you, and you don't need a boat really for some of the, a lot of these areas. No, you don't need a boat. I specialize in inshore fishing without a boat, but I also ha- know a lot of people that do have a boat that can, that they either, they're either kayak fishermen or they'll take a canoe and go into the no motor zone areas, which that opens up a whole nother thing. If you're a really active person and you like to kayak fish, Florida is for you. You got fresh water, you got salt water. If you're fishing the Mosquito Lagoon area with a kayak, you can you know take your push pole or your your oar and you could stick that in the muck and tie off your kayak and you could go wade fish oh, yeah. for redfish and speckled sea trout and you could have a field day. And then now here's another thing. You've got areas down here where if you had a bunch of fly guys and you're like, hey, you know what? We're going to spend three or four days and we're going to go camp on this little island and we're going to fish this area and this area and that area. You have the luxury to do that down here. And down here, where would that be? There's several parks where you can camp out. There's several areas where if you had like say three or four kayak guys Mm -hmm. and one of them's going to tow a kayak that has all your essential gear, your cooler, your food and, and whatever, you could tow that behind you, find a spot, where you could pitch your tent and set up and just get one with nature. You won't see a soul. Roy, that is amazing. In some of these areas. The only the only people that you might see is another fellow kayak fisherman. 
And kayak fishermen down here are big. They've got a group on Facebook. I think it's the Orlando uh, Kayak Club or something like that. Right. God, this is cool. I was just thinking about that, like, you know, because Florida, obviously there's lots of people there and how do you get away from the crowds? But I mean, it sounds like there's some ways you can do it. You can find places like this, for example, getting in the kayak and getting out there. Exactly. Listen, I'm in a retail environment. Okay. So after my last day of dealing with people for 40 hours, unfortunately you have to deal with people. All right. So when you want peace and quiet and tranquility and you want to fish all by yourself to recharge your batteries from a challenging work week, there are plenty of spots down here. When I go out to the Mosquito Lagoon area, I have places where when I'm out there fishing, I could be out there for 10 or 12 hours and not see another soul. Yeah, that's cool. Wow. Yeah, I guess it's just like that. Like we said, you got to find little spots and uh, do a little bit of research, right? Absolutely. There's guys I've had come down here that I've met at Bass Pro, and then they're immediately planning trips to come back down here and fish. They fly into an airport with their gear. They're taking an Uber to a location off the turnpike, and they're going to be fishing for peacock bass. And when they're ready to get back to their resort or their hotel, they get an Uber guy to come pick them up. They take them back to the hotel. They clean up. They eat dinner, and they go back to sleep. They might tie some flies, and they repeat that the next day. There it is. So you don't even need a yeah rental car. Just do the Uber. Oh, yeah. Take an Uber. If your resort is within 10 minutes of where you're fishing at, okay, you're probably not going to pay a lot of money for an Uber driver. And then, because, you know, the availability of social media, start talking to guys on Facebook or TikTok or Instagram. I've got guys that are coming in from Brazil and Sweden just to fish down here. Nice. I think we're opening this up to, you know, it's not necessarily like I think a lot of people think where you have to spend a lot of money to do the lodge sort of thing. Oh, no, no, no. Listen, I'm all about, you know, it's like when we talk about spay rod fishing and fly fishing. There are people that will tell you, you got to spend $2,000 on a setup to do fly fishing well. Listen, you come to Bass Pro Shop and you buy a Dogwood Canyon for $79.99 in a five weight or an eight weight combo, okay? And I've got the video to back it up. I'm catching tarpon out in the Canaveral Seashore Park. So it's not expensive. So if you're looking to save money on a trip, the most expensive thing you're going to pay for is going to be your airfare, your accommodations, okay? And then because the Airbnb is so popular, you might get a better rate at an Airbnb than you would on a big resort. Mm, yep. And those are cool anyways, doing the Airbnb. Airbnb is big here. There's one over here about six miles from my house. It's this little boat cottage on Stark Lake. And if you were to type in uh, Airbnb, um, Okoe, Florida, Stark Lake, S-T-A-R-K-E, You'll see what I'm talking about. And I believe it's under a hundred bucks a day, maybe 80 to a hundred bucks a day. I'm not, don't quote me on that. But the last time I checked the price was two years ago. And, and a few years ago, it was around 75 to $85 a day. Air conditioning, internet, you could sleep up to six people in there and you were on a freshwater lake. Wow. There you go. Okay. So the cool thing is you've got Airbnbs on the beach. Okay, I got another guy in uh, in Melbourne by the name of Captain Kenny Strimple. They've got an Airbnb and it's booked all the time, and it's right off near Melbourne Beach. Perfect. Now this is opened up. I love it. The Uber Airbnbs, 
you know, again, it's tons of different ways to do this. Oh, yeah. It's like if you said to me, hey, Johnny, I want to go to Jensen Beach. Where would I fish at? You need to contact Rex Hansen at Worldwide Flyworks. And then the other cool thing about Rex is uh, his wife owns a place called Mrs. Peter's Smokehouse where they, you know, process fish and they make uh, mahi dip mm-hmm. and, and stuff and that. But the nice thing is if you didn't want to go down to the Keys, the water is super clear over there. It's two and a half hours from Orlando. And you get that vibe from being in the Florida Keys right over at Jensen Beach. Wow. Okay. And then if you said, hey, I want to go fishing in Tampa Bay, Johnny, who do I need to contact in Tampa Bay? Hey, let me make a phone call and I'll give you two or three phone numbers for these guys over there. So if you wanted to fish in Tampa Bay in the Gulf of Mexico, you got all that there. Yeah, Tampa, that's a good area. You definitely, I feel like it's like, well, you know, let's, let's move down there that you got it all. I mean, what, what's the, what are the, when you look at the bigger picture people, you know, like if somebody literally loved it so much, they wanted to move down there. What's that look like? Is that a challenge to say you're coming from wherever around the country or is Florida a pretty easy place to get situated in? What would you tell somebody about that? I tell you what, when I moved to Okoye, Florida, 15 years ago from Rochester, New York, I didn't know anybody. I lived in Rochester for my whole life. Okay. I was rooted there like nobody's business. And when I moved down here and I didn't know anyone, I went through like cultural withdrawal. Right. Because every weekend we're at somebody's house or they're at my house and my kids were little back then. So it's like, man, you got no, really, you don't have any friends down here. But because if you're the kind of person that makes friends easy and you're a fly fisherman, I have more fly fishermen friends now than I did in the whole 40 years of growing up in Rochester. Okay. And you don't need to make a ton of money to survive down here. No kidding. Contrary, you know, to what people tell you, yeah, houses are for sale for $500,000. Yeah. Whoop-de-doo. But you know what? There are people selling houses that were made in the eighties and you can get them for, you know, as cheap as 165,000 to say $200,000. See, and now you're even paying more attention because I mean, geez, I mean, we're on the West Coast and I mean, $500,000 is actually uh, not a bad deal. I mean, like the thing, the market has got crazy, right? All around the country. Okay. So let's use that as a number. Yeah. If you said to me, hey, John, okay, I want to buy a $500,000 house. Listen, you could have your wife and say you got two kids and your in-laws move in with you and have an in-ground swimming pool in a nice neighborhood. And if you were paying cash, you could get a really good deal in a really nice area. And like where I live at in Winter Garden, I live near downtown Winter Garden. Oh, you're in Winter Garden. Yeah. I'm in Winter Garden. So Winter Haven is like another almost an hour from me. Okay. So Winter Garden is where from Winter Haven? Uh, It's east of Winter Haven. Okay. So Winter Haven If I took I-4 and I was going to go to Tampa, I have to pass Winter Haven, which is like the halfway point for me. But the nice thing down here is they're constantly building things. There's plenty of jobs down here. If somebody moved to to Orlando and say they couldn't hack it and they left, I can't speak for them. But all I can tell you is I've been down here a long time. I'm at Bass Pro Shop right now and I'm fishing. Time flies. We're talking with you on the podcast. I got a fantastic life over here. That's cool. What got you down there when you first, like you might've said this, but from New York, why did you head down to Florida originally? I moved down to Florida. I had a few health issues. Plus my mother and my sister were down here. Oh, cool. So I come down to be closer to them. And then I was with my first wife and then her and I split up. And then I'm with my second 
and everything is nice. My kids are all grown up. Okay. I got a little five-year-old granddaughter and she's over in Gainesville. And, um, you know, it's just Sandra and I right now. And we've got this, you know, cute little apartment that we have that's near downtown Orlando. We're walking distance to the uh, restaurants and bars and breakfast places. They've got a little a farmer's market on Saturday mornings. Okay. And the weather right now, you know, it's like in the mid eighties, but by Jeez. the time the sun goes down, I don't wear flip-flops. Okay. Right. <laughs> Cause my feet are not tan. Yeah. I would look goofy if I did. Right. But you're in shorts and a t-shirt and then everybody that's friendly is down here. We've got places like the hangry bison, the crooked can. And these are all local places where when you go, like last night I was having dinner at the hangry bison. It's walking distance from my, my home. We ran into several people that we know, you know, in the fishing community and then coworkers from where Sandra works at. And it's nice. It, and the crime over in Winter Garden is really low because the Winter Garden PD, these guys don't play around. These guys do old-fashioned foot patrols. They're All patrolling right. around. Okay. But you're also in an area where if you can afford a $500,000 house, Usually you're, you're with people that they go to work, they come home, they want to have a good time and they can afford things. So generally you're in a better area. Yeah. Right. Right. You know, again, I think it's, uh, there's probably a few people that are going to start thinking about making the move after listening to this because it's, uh, it's good, but at a minimum, you know, we can get down there and do a trip. Like we said today, we painted the picture and we didn't get all around uh, Florida, but we definitely touched on a few things. And like we said, we have resources. Let's take it out of here with the fair flies because we started that talking about that. But just so people have a few flies or at least some stuff to get if they want to tie some of these flies. Let's talk about that a little bit. Oh, listen, fair flies. I tell you what, I was at the ICAST show this year. All right. And I only was able to go there one day. Yeah. And where was ICAST? Where is that? Remind us again. ICAST is held at the Orlando Convention Center every year. Um, most everybody that you're going to see in fishing is going to be there. Let me just say, this is the perfect connection because I've already been chatting about this. And that's one thing I haven't been to. So I think this year, I think I'm going to have to hit you up. So let's, when is the, when is the ICAST? Uh, I believe the ICAST this year was in June. Yeah, June-ish. Okay, so that's right in time where you could get a tarpon, right? Exactly. ICAST is right around the time uh, where the good tarpon fishing is going to be for somebody uh, that would love to come down and catch fish. So uh, Rinaldo Enterprises is one of my sponsors. So what I did is I went down there and I was at the casting pond for the fly fishermen doing spay rod casting demos all day. And because uh, one of the reasons that they're one of my sponsors is they make a sinking monofilament line called Previa Total and a floating line called Previa Max. It's made by a company in Poland called Ball Sacks with an X. I know somebody's going to chuckle at it because I did when I first heard yeah. it too. <laughs> but Rinaldo Enterprises has been bringing this product over here for the last 15 years. I will compare their monofilament lines to anybody in the industry that's all I use right now. I use the Previa Max floating line, which is a dark blue. That's all I use for my uh, shooting heads, uh, running lines. Then my leader material is all on the Previa Total Sinking Mono, which is way better than fluorocarbon. Mm. Now, I know somebody's going to get their panties in a wad about me saying fluorocarbon isn't all that great. But I'm going to tell you something right now. If I take a two-foot section of fluorocarbon, 
and I start rubbing it up against a tree branch and break it, you can't do the same thing with the previous total sinking line. Because I'm the kind of guy that has to put his hands on it. I got to beat it up and I got to see if it's worth my time to utilize in my arsenal. Okay. So if I'm using, you know, Berkeley uh, Trilene Mono for my leader material, I'll integrate that with the sinking line. But since I've got so many different poundages of the previous total, I just utilize that as, as my line. So getting to the spay rod real quick, a little bit of weight in your leader will help give you a little extra distance and lay out that fly nice and straight on the spay rod. Okay. But the reason that I cast is important is because it gives you the ability to network with like the fair fly guys, the guys that fair flies, in my opinion, they make the best equipment for fly tying mm -hmm. those pre-made dubbing brushes. If you don't like those, you, you gotta be out of your mind. <laughs> Seriously. And these are the dubbing brushes that you'd use for, say, like you said, the chartreuse for something. Oh, yeah. Like even their craft fur, okay? Everything that they've got in their catalog is a fantastic product. When I was there at ICAST, I grabbed a bunch of that stuff to tie. And let me tell you, if I didn't go to ICAST, I'd have never met those guys over at Fairflies. Those guys are legit. Anybody that would buy Fairflies products, you will not be disappointed. And I'm using it on bass and tarpon and saltwater species down here. Right. And part of that is that it makes it just easier and quicker, right, to tie flies. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Like instead of using a brush, if you were to tie that same fly, you would have to what? Just do a lot more steps to put that together. Okay. So, so the fair flies pre-made brushes are fantastic because, number one, a lot of guys that fly tie if they're not shown by a professional tire, they're going to have trouble with that dubbing loop, all right? Then you, you have so many intricate steps to create in a dubbing brush by hand. By buying it, it will save you at least 15 minutes in tying your fly. Mm. Because I experimented with a couple of uh, beginner fly tires, and I showed them how to make their own dubbing brushes. And when we used the Fair Flies brush, it saved them 15 minutes per popper. Right. Yeah, that's it. So the time savings is huge. And then also like in the craft. And, then, or, and also yeah. the durability because they're pre-made brushes. They're, they're made with wire. Oh, right. You have a stronger brush that if it's getting beat up by uh, largemouth bass and tarpon, it's going to last you a while. It's not going to fall apart on you. Yeah. So durability, speed. And then the other cool thing, I think this is like the bonus. We've talked about this before, but... Um, Everything they do is creating, you know, a better environment for the people that are building the brushes around the world, right? They're supporting marginalized communities, right? Absolutely. When you go to ICAST and you look at how much money Fairflies is spending in vendor space there, they had one of the most beautiful displays there. They had a table where you could tie flies, sit down on a couch, and when you go to meet everybody from that company... It's like you've already had a rapport with them, okay? It's not like, okay, I can only give you five minutes and then I got to go talk to somebody else. No, those guys are not like that there. Listen, meeting Chris Allen was like meeting somebody that I haven't talked to in about 10 years and we're just catching up. That's how those guys are over there. So when I sit there and tell guys in Orlando, hey, look it, you guys got to check out Fairflies. So when I teach the, the fly tying classes, every new person, hey, man, Get on your phone and look up this company. Save this. Talk to these guys. 
talk to Chris, tell them that you're buddies with me and they will set you up with a fantastic product. Yeah, perfect. I think you said it well, you know, about the company and the products, which is awesome. Well, let's start to take it out of here pretty quick here. And I just had a couple of some random questions. One you mentioned back earlier on, you know, taking us back to the, you know, maybe out there fishing for tarpon or whatever, but you mentioned alligators. So what is that like for somebody who's never been fishing around alligators? Take us there. All right. Okay. So unfortunately in Florida from May all the way up until October, you're going to get 80, 90 and hundred degree weather down here. Okay. Every body of water is going to have an alligator you need to exercise some caution and pay attention. If you're bass fishing and you hook into bass and you see alligators, do me a favor. Instead of running a 12-pound tippet to your fly, run a straight piece of 30 or 40-pound mono. And when you hook that fish, get away from the shoreline. Keep a rag with you. And then when you unhook the fish, you know, walk closer to the shoreline, throw it back. Because if you get an alligator coming up after you, he pretty much wants that fish. Mm. Unfortunately. There are people down here that think this is funny by catching a fish and letting the alligator chase it. And what it does is it creates a behavior on the alligator's part and it puts human life at risk. Now, if you go out to Mosquito Lagoon where I fish at, oh yeah, you need to be super careful. None of this nonsense of saying, hey, you know what? You need to keep that tarpon in the water to release it. Hey, look at buddy. You come down fish with me, you get in the water, keep that 12-foot alligator away from me, and then I'll do what you just told me to. When I hook those tarpon and my friends and I go fishing, all right, we get that fish out of the water. We either hand lip it like a bass, get away from the shoreline, and I'm not talking two, three feet. I'm talking like 10, 15, 20 feet away from the shoreline. Unhook that fish, walk several feet away, and then put that fish in the water. Do not get in the habit of putting your hands in the water and washing your hands like you're in fresh water because down here, those alligators will come up and grab you and drag you in the water. Wow. Okay. I'm not trying to paint a bleak picture. That's the reality. Yeah. You're in a federal nature center. Okay. Alligators that get to be 12 feet long and bigger. Okay. They eat big stuff like 168 pound fly fishermen from Bass Pro Shop like me. <laughs> right. Okay. So you got to pay attention, all right? Fish with people that would sit there and bring some rocks with them. So if the alligator does come at you, we usually end up throwing some rocks at at an alligator, and they usually go away. Oh, you do? So you've had to actually throw rocks at an alligator? Yes. I actually know guys that they'll bring two dozen bricks with them. Wow. And what does the alligator do when you throw a brick at it? Uh, It might take two or three for him to get the hint and swim away. (sighs) Damn. That is nuts. Okay. Now, here's another thing. There's a state statute that says, hey, you're not supposed to menace the alligators. Okay. So if I hook a nice tarpon and I'm by myself and an alligator is coming, I'm just going to yank my fly line and snap my tippet. And hopefully that tarpon can swim away and not get eaten by an alligator. All right. But I was fishing with my friend Lou and my friend Hunter in a really tight spot, hooked a nice 36-inch snook. And because my, my leader got stuck in a tree branch, I couldn't pull that fish out of the water. Big 12 or 13 foot alligator come up and grab that snook. I kind of felt like crap because if I could have snapped that line, that fish could have swam away. Right. So that's the downfall of fishing in that area. And that's the first time that's happened to me where I lost a fish to an alligator in the last six years. Man, crazy. How often do you hear about people 
getting, uh, you know, attacked or eaten by an alligator just in general. The only time I hear about somebody getting attacked by an alligator is because they're doing something stupid. Yeah. All right. If you're in the water and you're not splashing and you move super, super slow, the likelihood of you getting grabbed by an alligator is slim to none. Mm. Okay. Now, if you're in an isolated area where an alligator really doesn't see people, more so than not, those alligators are going to go away because they don't want to be bothered by humans. Anytime that you're fishing along the shoreline here in Florida and you got an alligator coming to you, it's because somebody's been enticing that alligator to come near humans. All right. But generally speaking, they really don't want to bother you. Right, right. So you just got to be careful. Fish with somebody that fishes with alligators. All right. Now in freshwater, when I'm fishing, I've had alligators within 10 feet of me sunning themselves in the mid morning while I'm fly casting for bass at Stark Lake and they've never bothered me, but I'm not going to go teased. I'm not going to go poke the bear and get close enough to see if he'll jump in the water. Okay. The guys that golf down here, if there's an alligator on the fairway, you know, they'll go kick the tail and they'll turn around and jump back in the water. But if you got an alligator that wants to come near you, if he wants to grab you, he's going to grab you. So just be careful. Yeah, just be careful. That, that's the tip. And just like any wild animal, it's just, yeah, give them their room and uh, don't entice them, right, with any uh, any live fish. I guess that's the thing. It sounds a little scary. And I guess that's the one thing if you were down there your first time, especially if you're out kayaking or something, you, man, I'd always be thinking like, wow, is there an alligator under my boat right now? So the benefit of of becoming friends with people that have lived here all their life is this. And being able to fish in the, in the same waters that we're talking about right now, I've never had an alligator grab me or my fish. And that's one of the reasons why I like to use the spay rod. I've got a friend named Hunter Myers, who's a guide in Virginia Beach, and my friend Luke Khan. The day that I lost that snook, I also hooked several 10-pound tarpon, and I used my sage method spay rod and literally lifted the tarpon out of the water to keep the alligator from grabbing it. And my friend's like, oh, my God, are you going to break your rod? Hey, look, and I'm not losing that fish to that alligator. I just lost a snook to it. Right. Okay. I was able to get that fish out of the water, on the ground, unhook them, walk down about 20 feet away, put them back in the water, and release without any incident. Good. This is uh, this is pretty amazing. And I think the alligators just add actually a cool, uh, you know, like it's almost like a, to me, you know what I mean? It's like nature. You go down there, it's just like anywhere. You're up in Alaska. Well, you better be thinking about the grizzly bears. It's the same deal. Oh, exactly. So for guys that have fished for salmon in Alaska, you got the same danger in a big bear predator, okay? Except that the disadvantage of being down here in Florida is when I fish for ribbon fish, I'm on an observation deck that's about eight feet above the water because you'll see 12 plus foot alligators submerge themselves in three or four feet of water and they'll be eating ribbon fish. And if you're wading in that same body of water, you're taking your life in your own hands. I saw a lady lose her dog and she was walking along the shoreline where I was fishing. I says, hey, ma'am, don't take your wa- your dog down there. Well, you mind your own business, sonny boy. You know, this <laughs> is my service dog. Three minutes later, big alligator grabbed that dog and yanked it in the water. And she had the leash, the loop part of the leash on her wrist. She almost got dragged in there. Oh, geez. Okay. If she'd have listened to me instead of, you know, getting pissy with me, that dog would have never gotten killed. She'd have never been traumatized and none of that would have happened. If you want to be like that, 
that's on you, but don't come in. She's like, you got to help me. You got to help me. My dog's getting killed. Oh, wow. I'm like, I'm 100 feet away, lady. I can't help you. Damn. And I carry a handgun when I'm fishing in alligator-infested waters. Oh, sure. And what's your gun of choice for alligators? I carry a, a six-hour P320. A six-hour. So what is that like? What's that? The German Sig Sauer handgun. Oh, so it's like a caliber. This is like a, a big, like a 40. It's a model. Yeah, I usually carry like a nine millimeter handgun. Most guys, most guys go out there, they'll carry like a 357 or a 45. Yeah, big, big thing. You know, something bigger. Some guys I know, they'll carry a pump shotgun when I'm in that. But um, you just got to learn the water, okay? The reason I like to use the spay rod out there is if I'm culvert fishing where the drainage tubes are, and if it's six or seven feet of water, behind, you know, uh, exiting the drainage tube, I take the spay rod and I put my tip in the water and I go back and forth, back and forth, creating water disturbance. If there's an alligator there, he'll come straight up looking to see what's making that disturbance. Okay. If you're throwing a popper early in the morning and it makes sound and water push, if there's an alligator there, he's going to come out and eat your popper. So the cool thing about popper fishing is you can verify to see what alligators are around. So then if I don't see an alligator, I'll continue fishing my popper. If an alligator starts chasing my popper, I'll take the popper off and I'll put it like a clouser minnow on or a bait fish pattern. And then I can avoid any conflict right there. Wow, this is cool. Let's take it out of here. Just, um, I guess a couple of, one thing I was going to ask you about is your email, the Bucky. I was curious about that. Bucky, what is it? Uh, Buckshot. Uh, where, where did that, what's the history there on, on your email? Oh, okay. All right. So several years ago, I used to manufacture tactical gear, rifle shotguns and um, pistol um, chest rigs, leg rigs. And I used to fix a lot of tactical gear for people in that. And I used to uh, do a lot of high risk armed security. So a friend of mine helped me set up an email, you know, Johnny Buckshot, because that was what I was going by. And then basically I got bored with that and ran its course and then didn't want to do it no more. So I went from doing high risk security and, and teaching, you know, pistol rifle and shotgun classes to basically jumping into fly fishing. I mean, I've been fly fishing the whole time, but you know, do you want to go to work in tactical gear and have somebody shoot at you? Nah. So because of that former job that I had, COVID pushed me into fishing full time. Because my work was a lot of contract work and because you couldn't get near nobody, you, nobody was, you know, we were losing work. So I was like, okay, so that's where I got into the bait shop business. Then I was at the bait shop for a while, for a couple of years, and then uh, ended up over here at Bass Pro. But I never stopped fly fishing. Right. So it's always been going. That's awesome. It's always been going. And then for the last, the last uh, 16 years, I've been tying flies. And then, you know, I was fortunate enough to get on the, the Norvice Pro Fly Tying staff. And, you know, anybody does know what a Norvice is, oh, check yeah. them out. I can crank out way more flies on a Norvice than I could on a traditional vice. You got the awesome guys at Fair Flies and, and whatnot. And then Paul Ronaldo at Ronaldo Enterprises. And, of course, you know, Bass Pro Shop, you know, they treat me really well over there. I, I got a great bunch of people to work with. My management's great. You know, there's times where I don't even feel like I actually worked, you know, because you're helping people fly fish, you're rigging them up, you know, you're picking out flies for them and yeah, you're busy the whole day, but next thing you know, it's time to go home and you're like, wow, where'd the day go? Yeah, that is cool. The biggest blessing is, you know, I'm living the fly fishing lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah, no, it is. You, you <laughs> took us there today, you know, you took us into a part of the, 
we've talked a little bit about Florida, but really haven't dug into it. And uh, you know what I mean? Like today we really have a flavor of what it's about and the diversity. So, and that makes sense because it is Florida, right? It truly is. And then, you know, especially when you're talking about, you know, especially a lot of the younger guys, like in their 20s and 30s, and they're just getting their family started. And, you know, they all want to do a family vacation. But, you know, you always got the husband or the father, he wants to do some fishing. Okay. So like when my kids were little, and we would come down to visit my mom and my sister and whatnot, my nieces and nephews, you know, I always had to get some fishing in. And then we would do the family thing. All right. Now that everybody's all grown up and it's just Sandra and I right now, you know, I was fishing this morning. Nice. I was fishing at Stark Lake and then I took a friend of mine and he was having trouble with his fly casting. So basically I was giving him an opportunity to fish in a hard pond near my house. And now he realizes, okay, I need to make some changes. So now it's going to make him a better fisherman. By making those changes in his gear, he's going to be using a different rod. He's going to be using a weight float line. He's going to be using the the previous total lines because they're thinner diameter and they're super strong. And then eventually he wants to do fly tying. So then he's going to get into the Fairflies products. But like literally, if somebody was on the fence, do I stay here in my hometown or do I make the jump and go to Florida? This is what I would tell you. Come down for two weeks. Come fish with a guy like me. Let me show you the cool things that I have found that my friends and my family enjoy down here. You're going to go back home with a different perspective of Orlando and Florida in general, because I'm not a tourist. I'm not a tour guide. I'm a fisherman. Love that. I think that's well said. I think that's a good way we should wrap this one up and we'll, we'll definitely have to keep up with you because I think we're going to get a lot of questions for people, you know, that want to travel and get out to some of these places. So and I think uh, hopefully I cast. Well, I tell you what, Dave, you know, it's been a, a really big honor for you to let me bend your ear and all that. And my door's always open. You know, anybody has any questions, there's no such thing as a stupid question. And if anybody comes to Orlando and you want to come in the Bass Pro Shop and come fish with me, you know, you're my guest. Come on out. Yeah, we're going to come there for sure, John. Well, I appreciate all the time today and uh, for you know, sharing your knowledge and wisdom with everybody here. And definitely uh, we're, we're going to touch base with you and, and we'll follow you on uh, TikTok or on Instagram. I guess on TikTok is JBF Spay and then John Grasta on uh, Instagram, or we'll just call it Bass Pro. We'll give you a call in Orlando, right? There you go. So I have one quick question for you before we wrap yeah. up. So I've had friends of mine that were interested in listening to the podcast. How were someone would go to listen to that? Yeah, yeah. The best way to listen to it, like everybody right now who's listening is probably listening on an app. Go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, any of the listening apps, we're there. It's Wet Fly Swing, right? So we're out there. And then, but you can go to the website. You can just go right to wetflyswing.com and you can listen right on the website, right? My recommendation is if you don't right now to go to the website, wetflyswing.com and just subscribe to our newsletter or just click on Apple Podcasts or whatever you listen to your stuff on and then subscribe to the show there. And then you'll get instantly, when this the next episode comes out, you'll be updated. Thank you, Dave. It's a pleasure to talk with you. And like I say, there's all kinds of stuff that you could do another topic on down here. Oh, good. All right, we'll check back with you, John. Thanks a lot. All right, thank you. So there you go. If you want to get all the show notes and links and stuff we talked about today, wetflyswing.com slash 388. 388. We're working our way to 400 right around the corner, 12 episodes, and we're going to be hitting that magical 400 mark. Quick uh, shout out to one of the winners uh, on the last giveaway we did, uh, Chris Palenque, who won the SA uh, Flyline in our last event. This was the 
This is for the Alaska giveaway we gave the big trip away, but uh, Chris also uh, connected and he was on the live event and uh, and because he was there, we gave away a few bonus products. So if you ever see the live events out there, uh, we do these on Facebook um, and we're trying to spread these out. You can connect to that and there's a good chance to win some extra uh, swag and products. Love to hear from you if you get a chance, wetflyswing.com. Uh, you can send me an email anytime, Dave at wetflyswing or on social. Check in with me. I'd love to uh, connect with you and get some information. If you're brand new to the show and haven't connected to me yet, send me an email. Let me know what you think and what I can do to serve you. Uh, it would be great to hear from you. All right, we're heading out of here. We talked today about ICAST and some of the events. Uh, I'm planning on hitting that one up this year along with some other ones. So if you have an event also that you're going to be going to, whether that's ICAST, definitely connect with me. I'd love to meet you up in person. And I'm excited for the next year here. We're going to have a bunch of uh, great trips coming and some big events. So we're kind of trying to take this out uh, even more. The podcast is going to keep rolling along just like always. We're going to keep plugging away and putting out great episodes, but we're also going to be getting out there live, especially now that, you know, we're kind of uh, putting COVID well behind us uh, and this is going to be a fun year. So if you get a chance, uh, drop me a line, let me know. All right. I would love to see you on the water in that Florida trip. If we can get out there and do that, uh, that would be awesome. But if we can't just connect with me online, like I said, and today I hope you have a great morning if it's morning and if it's afternoon. Have a great afternoon or evening, wherever you are in the world. Thanks for your support, and I will talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.